I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer. Definitely, Father, I just want to thank you for the passage before us and you know, the impact that it has had on so many Christians uh, throughout the centuries. Lord, I thank you that um, your grace is so much greater than anything we could imagine. And the grace that we really see you know, exhibited in the chapters leading up to this and the grace that we see in the basis for the Christian life is uh, you know, so beyond anything that we could have dreamed of. And that you know, th this alone is really proof of the, uh, the supernatural origin of the, of the scriptures. Thank you so much for these, uh, uh, th this passage. And Lord, help us to really uh, understand what's said here and help it to impact our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I was able to get two uh, chapters of Romans that I was really excited to teach. And uh, there's two reasons that I, I liked them. One of them is that uh, the, the chapters mark probably the two most important transitions in the book of Romans. Uh, if you were to divide Romans into three parts, you would probably look at Romans 1 through 8 as kind of an ex exposition of the gospel by Paul. You'd look at Romans 9 through 11 as dealing with a very specific objection to the gospel. Um, if you know, God's people, are, are the Jews, are, are falling away and kind of in large rejecting the gospel, what does that mean for God's faithfulness to keep his promises? And finally, in 12 through 15, Paul lays out our response to the gospel. And so the, the transition between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 is probably the most significant transition in the Bible. So that's one of the, the two things that I really liked about the, the chapters I was able to teach. The other is uh, the, the impact that these two chapters have had on me. And I'll, I'll get to that towards the end today, I think. If you look at the Pauline epistles, as, as well as some of the non-Pauline epistles like Hebrews, you'll see that they d divide kind of neatly into two different parts. Um, you'll see you know, a development of theology in, in the first section of the book. I'll, I'll say first half, although it might be a little bit longer. In, uh, in some cases, it typically is. And then you'll see how that theology should impact our lives in the second half of the book. And in the, the passage that we've got, this is where Paul is transitioning between um, indicatives and imperatives, or theory and application, if, if you prefer. If you look through chapters 1 through 11, you'll see very little in the way of imperatives, or very little in the way of direct commands. Uh, it, it's all theology uh, in, in that section. And as we're going to read chapter 12 in a few minutes, it's imperative after imperative after imperative. It's completely different. It's very easy to recognize. Um, I want to start by saying that what I'm going to really focus on in, in verse 1 is stuff that you've, you've probably heard quite a bit, especially at, at Spring Meadows. Tim does an outstanding job of emphasizing the connection between theology and application, but I still want to uh, dwell on that here. Um, and there's one other thing I want to point out. I'm probably not going to have as much time to deal with some of the specific teaching in chapter 12 as I would like. Uh, Kevin might you know, do a little bit of that next week, um, as he does 13. But uh, one thing that's kind of worth pointing out is that it's very similar to the teaching of Jesus. And so if you turn on your handout, on the back side, you'll see a comparison where I've got your different teachings that you'll find in Romans chapters 12 through 15, and you know, how those really line up with different uh, you know, passages out of the Gospels from the, the lips of Jesus. So the, 
despite what you'll hear from certain parts of the church, the teaching of Paul and the teaching of Jesus is very much in line with each other. And that would be worth looking at this week if we don't uh, get that far, and we probably won't. So, um, before I, I read the passage, though, I'd like to kind of bring to mind something that I think a lot of Christians find a little bit challenging. And you kind of get us thinking about this because this is an issue that we'll be looking at. We see lots of unbelievers living what very much appear to be good lives. And you know, sometimes the, those lives uh, you know, put the lives of Christians to shame. Um, I want to just kind of pick one example. I, there's many I could pick, and I, I could be wrong about this individual, but I don't think so based on the, the quote from him I'm going to read. But Bill Gates does not appear to be a believer. I, I, I hope I'm wrong on that, but I'll, I'll read something from him that would suggest that he isn't. But what Bill Gates has really done in the last 18 years has been impressive. He's decided to give away more than 90% of his fortune. He's, uh, until recently, he was the wealthiest man in the world. Um, right now, he and Jeff Bezos are kind of neck and neck in, in terms of net worth. But in um, 2000, Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda, started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They've personally given more than $50 billion dollars. Um, that work is kind of aimed at alleviating suffering throughout the world. Most of it kind of goes outside of the United States. But as an academic, I see some of the stuff that they're supporting in the U.S. And generally, it, it's really nice stuff. For example, there's a, a site that they've developed that they're developing textbooks that are quality textbooks that are available free to students so that the students don't have to pay 150 bucks for a new textbook at the bookstore, but instead can... Um, you have access to a, a decent textbook online that is free and, and paid for, for by the foundation. They're trying to develop technologies to improve you know, health in the third world. Um, and you know, Bill Gates has been encouraging other billionaires to do the same. He started something called the, um, the Giving Pledge, and he's gotten 14 billionaires to sign up to give away half of their net worth or more. Um, but let me kind of read a quote from, from Bill Gates that... This, that um, you kind of uh, highlights where this is coming from. And um, anyway, the quote is, the moral systems of religion, I think, are, are super important. We've raised our kids in a religious way. They've gone to the Catholic church that Melinda goes to and that I participate in. I've been very lucky, and therefore I owe it to try to reduce the inequity in the world. And that's kind of a religious belief. I mean, at least it's a moral belief. And this, this quote is very much in line with a lot of things that you'll hear uh, from unbelievers in our society. So I want to kind of contrast that with what the Bible uh, says that kind of seems to at least be in tension with it. In, if we just turn back a few chapters in Romans, we'll see Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if you look at the context, you'll see that there's only two types of people, those who are living by the Spirit and those who are living according to the flesh in, in, the, uh, in that chapter. Or if we uh, look at uh, John 15 from the lips of Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it, some translations say, apart from me, you can do no good thing. And that seems at least to be in, in tension with what we see in the lives of many unbelievers who live good lives. They're performing good works. I'm kind of putting good in quotation marks there. Um, 
why is it that the Bible says that unbelievers can do no good things and can't please God? Um, why is it that you know, apparently moral lives can be achieved without the gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, what, what is it that we have as believers that they don't? And so I want these questions to be kind of on your mind as we're looking at, at chapter 12. So I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 12 for us. Um, there's a few things to, to focus at on, especially kind of the you know, seeing how many imperatives come up in, as the chapter develops. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you who do not... um, among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Uh, Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but uh, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So think, think especially about the second half of the text, kind of the, the list of exhortations that we saw about love and hospitality and things like that. Most of those would not be particularly out of place in other religions. Um, you, know, you, you can certainly find a, a variety of other religions fairly removed from Christianity that would probably hold to almost everything that we see in, in this chapter as well as in the, the, the chapters that follow. Um, <clears throat> but you know, the Bible is really clearly teaching that if we're going to live a life that's pleasing to God, we can only uh, do it as believers in Jesus Christ. Um, so the, the question that we're going to be wrestling with primarily and we'll, we'll answer probably a few times, so if it seems a little bit repetitive, it, uh, it's because it is. And if it doesn't, you're probably listening too fast. Um, that 
we're, we're going to answer that, that a few times, but I want to look at you know, why is Christian morality fundamentally different than what may be found in Hinduism or, or Mormonism, for example. But before we really get to that question, let's kind of start unpacking the verse. Um, whenever you come to a therefore in Scripture, and we, we come to one in, at, at the beginning of, of verse 1, you always want to ask yourself, what is the therefore therefore? Um, what's, it, what's it pointing to? <laughs> um, and in this case, there, there's certainly a clue in chapter 12, verses 1. You know, therefore, I, I urge you by the mercies of God. And so the therefore is connected to the mercy of God that we must have seen previously. And there's two different ways that we could kind of you know, look at that. You could look at chapters 1 through 11, the, which is kind of Paul expounding on the gospel as you know, the mercy of God being revealed throughout that entire section. Or you could kind of notice that mercy is really highlighted in God's electing love that's shown in 9 through 11. Um, you, you'll, you'll get different answers to that depending on who you're lis- you listen to, but I'm not sure it's really that important. It's, it's, but it's definitely pointing to the earlier sections of Romans. Um, the, the therefore is pointing back to the mercy of God that we've seen in the, the, the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, it's that connection that we're going to be looking at. Last fall, uh, kind of during the Reformation, Tim had a, one of many you know, illustrations of what the gospel really is that, that stuck with me. Um, and I want to kind of start by pointing uh, you know, to what the gospel is here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at it again. But this was from Martin Luther. And Martin Luther compared the gospel to a king that marries a prostitute. Um, and you know, this is a good king. And suddenly, you know, this prostitute has become the queen of the land. In, in title, in actuality, she's queen. But her life doesn't immediately change. But hopefully, she would realize what her office is and who she has actually become and her life would begin conforming to that. And we, we see that very much in the gospel. Let me contrast that with religion. This, the story is kind of shocking when you first hear it. Um, and it, it, it should be. Naturally, um, we would tend to tell that story very differently. We would tend to say that there might be a prostitute who would, would like to be out of her situation and doesn't really see any way of uh, advancement. Um, she's kind of stuck where she is. And suddenly she gets a message from the king that if she can get her act together, she could become queen. P- pretty generous offer, but she needs to earn it. Um, and so she might have a period of time, let's say a month, to really kind of try to get her act together to be able to, to merit being queen of the land. That's how religion would approach the, the problem of moral improvement compared to how the gospel uh, approaches it. There's a problem, though. Um, this is a good king. <laughs> One of the, he is the best king that this land has ever had. He's wise. The, the, king is, the, the kingdom is doing well. People are prospering. But not only that, he's uh, personally working very hard to try to improve justice and equality in the land. He's respected uh, by people. Um, so it's not just being a queen. You'd have to be a, a pretty good queen to deserve to be uh, queen in this particular country. If, if this story were to actually happen, what would happen to that prostitute is one of two things. After a, a few weeks, she'd really make some significant improvements 
her life would look quite a bit different than it looked before. She'd be trying very hard. But if she looked honestly, she would look at you know, the many failures that she you know, keeps running into and realize that she's so far from being worth being this king's queen that she would fall into despair and she'd probably end up worse off than she was before. That would be the better of the two possible outcomes. The worse outcome would be that she would um, try to think, okay, what, what, what should a queen look like? And she would try to make herself externally conform to that. And she would kind of rewrite uh, what a good queen should be in her head to be a set of standards that she can actually meet. Um, be very different than a, a realistic set of standards. But she would deceive herself into thinking that she was actually worthy of being a queen in this country. And she would end up uh, a worse person inside than she was before. Um, so that's kind of the difference between the gospel, where we're given a righteous standing and expected to kind of grow into it, and religion, where we're expected to, to earn a right, right standing with God. Um, and so that, that's kind of how this mercy that God has shown us already, when we were not undeserving, but ill-deserving. Um, we were rebels against God, and God showed us mercy. That, that's how that mercy should affect us. <clears throat> the, the next thing that we come to in, in uh, chapter, in verse 1, is that we're called to be a living sacrifice. Think, think of the Old Testament picture of sacrifice. Probably the first thing that comes to your mind is some sort of an offering that's at least a picture of an atonement or a propitiation for sins. And hopefully that feels wrong, and it, it is. <laughs> Christ's sacrifice is one once for all. Well, there's nothing that we can do that would in any way add to what Christ has already done. So that's probably not the picture that Paul has in mind. But there, there is another element of the Old Testament sacrificial system that he's, he's pointing to, and that would be worship. Uh, sacrifices were a way that God's people worshipped him in the Old Testament and, and, and gave to him and honored him. Um, and so that, that's what it's pointing to. And when you see worship come up in verse 2, I think that, that really makes it clear that that uh, is what Paul has in mind. So let's take a look at a few other uh, details that we see in, in the verse, as we, we keep going, that another word that kind of comes out that ought to jump out at us is bodies. Paul says, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Um, you might have expected, you know, offer your spirits or offer your minds. Um, why, why is it that bodies is going to be what is living a, a moral life that, that is worshipful of God? Why, why not kind of focus on the intellect? And I think that what, what Paul has in mind there is that simply you know, intellectually worshiping God isn't enough. It should flow into our lives. It should um, impact the totality of things. Our body should be responding to the change that's going on in our mind. And so I think that's what Paul's really trying to get at. That I don't think he's saying just bodies, but I think he's saying the totality of us should be living a life that's worshiping God based on what God has done for us. Holy and acceptable. Um, holy is a word that gets used a lot in church. Um, I think if I were to ask, most of you would probably be able to quote the, the standard biblical definition of holy. It means set apart. It can mean a little bit more than that. But there was a sermon that came to mind when I saw that that did a, such a good job of defining the difference between holiness and morality that I just want to quote from this. Uh, this is a pastor named Artazerdia. He's got a little church up in Portland but one of the best 
uh, most inspiring preachers I, I've heard. I, if you get a chance to, to download some of his sermons, they're, they're well worth listening to. So, and this is on the difference between morality and holiness. Morality is the negative concept. It defines itself by what one refrains from doing. <clears throat> it's, the preoccup uh, its preoccupation is almost always focused on externals. Holiness is a positive concept. It, just mu it is much more holistic, and holistic is actually a related term. It embraces externals, to be sure, but it doesn't stop there. It is far more penetrating and comprehensive. The moral person abstains from wrong actions. The holy person hates the very thought of doing wrong. The moral person is driven by what people perceive him to be. The holy per person is driven by what God wants him to be. The moral person mindlessly adheres to a cold list of do's and don'ts. The holy person ponders what brings the greatest pleasure to his heavenly father. The moral person keeps meticulous record of all the of his good deeds, expecting by them to win the favor of God. The holy person grieves that nothing he ever does, for um, even for God, is completely free of any sinful, selfish motive. And he knows that every blessing he ever received from God is pure grace. The moral person lives by his own definition of uh, what is right and what is wrong, and he loves to impose that definition on other people. The holy person allows the word of God to direct his life in anything. Beyond that, he guards the silences of the Bible as honoring the differences that freedom allows among those who dearly love the same Savior. And so I think here we're starting to see a, a good answer to the difference between morality that you can achieve without the gospel and authentic Christianity. In Externally, they, they may look very similar to each other, but at the heart level, they're completely different. So Paul is telling us to live a moral life that he's going to be outlining in chapters 12 through 15, and doing that is worship to God. You can probably kind of see the answer already, but if you stop and think about it, how is it that living a moral life is worshipful to God? Um, if my wife had obeyed the speed limit when she was driving here, she didn't, but if she had, would she have been worshiping the Department of Transportation by doing that? No, she probably would have been avoiding trying to get a ticket, um, or trying to be safe, I hope, but it's not really worshiping the Department of Transportation to obey those rules. Um, when we file our taxes on time, are we worshiping the IRS? No, <laughs> there's no aspect of worship to that. So why is it then that o obeying the as creatures obeying the commands of our creator can be worship. Um, well, let's think about someone that's living uh, an outwardly moral life. Where is the glory for that going? And it's going to themselves. It, right, well, well um, there, there really isn't anything pointing outside of themselves. But if we kind of look to what we have been given in already being given a righteous standing before God and having... God's son die for us on, on the cross to be able to have a relationship with God. And that truth sinks in. Can a, that truth grabs hold of us and changes our hearts and causes us to live a moral life. That really doesn't reflect well on us. That reflects well on God. Uh, and, and that's how two people, both living kind of from the, the surface of a moral life, can still be completely different in, in the motivation. And people obey moral standards for a range of reasons. Social standing, perception that life will go better, fear of punishment, perception of reward. 
And, and these aren't exactly bad. I mean, you'll find a lot of those actually spelled out in the Bible. Um, but they're, they're not enough. Um, they, if you look at the um, Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God or exalt God and to glorify him forever and enjoy him forever. Um, and you know, living a moral life that's not really connected to the gospel does nothing towards that end. Um, so the, um, the, the connection between Romans chapters 12 through fi uh, 15 and 1 through 11 is incredibly important. The books would not function sep well separated, even though they kind of would, would hold their own. One, one is theology, one is imperatives. But the imperatives flow from the theology that's developed in, in chapters 1 through 11. And the word that I, I just brought up, theology, is a word that's becoming increasingly unpopular in a, a lot of aspects of Christianity, which I, I think is unfortunate. Um, I decided to look for a definition, and I actually liked Wikipedia's um, of the few definitions that I found relatively quickly, and defines theology as the critical stature of the nature of the divine. What ought to be more interesting to a Christian than knowing more about God? Um, if you realize what God has done for you, we ought to be excited to know more about him. And so theology ought to be a wonderful word, a word that gets us really excited. And unfortunately, it's not. Um, I, I said that I would say a little bit about kind of what brought me to Spring Meadows from a, a different church. <clears throat> One of the, the things that has really been uh, going on in the church, there's uh, kind of two related um, movements that you know, certainly have a lot of overlap between them, but the church growth movement and the seeker-sensitive movement. Um, the, they're not exactly the same, but they, they certainly overlap to, to a significant degree. And that has really kind of taken hold in, in Las Vegas especially. A lot of churches have been impacted by that to various degrees. And I, I do want to say that the motivation for, for both of those can be very positive. And I don't think either is entirely bad in and of itself. I think that there are some unhealthy attitudes that I'm going to be talking about. So I'm going to be speaking about both of these movements somewhat negatively. But I don't want to um, paint with too broad a brush. I, I think that there hopefully are, are going to be things that are learned from that and improve the church over time. And I think that there's also so ideas that have come up in both of those that are very destructive, and I, I hope that they leave the church as soon as possible. <clears throat> um, but that was kind of increasingly impacting the church that I was in. Um, the pastor is a, a really neat Christian. I, I like him, uh, and I ad admire him in a lot of ways. But the people that he listened to and the people that he read were primarily out of these two areas. Um, and that was kind of sinking in. The sermons were having less and less theology and more and more practical advice. It wasn't specifically unbiblical. Some of it was actually you know, found in the Bible. Some of it was kind of might be range from you know, good advice to maybe pop psychology, but it was coming to dominate the sermons more and more, and I was getting frustrated with it, but I wasn't theologically sophisticated enough to really understand what the problem was at the time. I, I do now, I think, at least at a, at a better level. Um, and at the same time, my small group was going through Romans. I was going very slow. I actually spent three studies just on Romans 12, 1 and 2 when we got to them. And I was really enjoying Romans. It was uh, 
sinking in. I was learning a ton from doing that. And shortly after finishing um, the first half of Romans chapter 1, the church did a small group uh, campaign where you know, all of the small groups kind of got onto the same study. They tried to start a bunch of new small groups, kind of a, a good thing. And they picked a, a book by a fairly significant figure in the church growth or the kind of seeker-sensitive movement uh, called Transformed. And it was actually kind of uh, based on Romans 12, 1 and 2. The, the, you, know, you do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I was kind of excited that it you know, fit in with what we were doing. And the study was incredibly frustrating to me. Um, he picked seven different um, you know, areas of growth and had really good moral advice and absolutely no connection to Romans 1 through 11. No theological basis for it. Um, I, what I told my pastor is there wasn't a single thing in that whole thing that would have offended a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or uh, a Hindu. Um, it was good moral teaching, nothing wrong with it, but it wasn't Christianity. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't able to convince him of the problem of that. And it became clear that I, I, I thought about kind of trying to to stay and try to positively you know, lead a small group to get people excited about theology. And it was becoming clear that that just wasn't going to happen. And, and I, I decided that I needed to find a church that, that valued theology and, and taught it well. And so I'm so thankful to have found Spring Meadows. Um, one more thing that I, I hope kind of emphasize this point. Um, when I was uh, looking into that and kind of trying to understand you know, the, the difference between you know, appreciating God, kind of letting that soak into our lives and having our lives change as a reflection of what we're learning about God and kind of just morality, I read a book by Michael Horton that I'd, I'd recommend. It's called Christless Christianity. And unfortunately, it's describing a, a larger and larger fraction of Christianity. And I don't think it's a case where you've got some churches that are Christless and some churches that are, are perfect. I think it's more of a spectrum. You know, if we say, don't commit adultery because you'll mess up your marriages, that's true. There, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you only say that, if you, if you don't point towards how marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ. And if we're messing up uh, marriage, we're, we're marring that, that picture and kind of diminishing, diminishing our ability to appreciate Christ, that, that teaching isn't distinctly Christian. And so I think you, you'll find a spectrum where churches aren't emphasizing Christ to the extent that they, they could and that are more Christless than they should be, although they're, they're still good churches. But the opening of that book really grabbed my attention, uh, probably more so than any opening paragraph. What would it look like if Satan really took control of the city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, the city where Barnhouse pastored, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. Um, and as I read that book, I realized, I think, he's right. <laughs> um, you know, if you look through Scripture, 
the consequences of, of sin, if we, you go to adultery and ruined marriages, that consequence is God's grace. It, it's judgment against sin, and it points us to a, a, a need for God. Satan would much rather have us comfortable living in cities with clean streets and kids that say, yes, ma'am, and no, sir, um, and not aware of the gospel than he would you know, learning the gospel and appreciating the gospel. And so I, I really want to emphasize that even though chapters 12 through 15 point us towards morality, if that morality is not founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not Christian. Um, once our eyes are spiritually opened, theology should become sweet and satisfying nourishment to Christians. God most re fully revealed himself in Christ. Christ is nourishment and life-sustaining to believers, so much so that Jesus says in John 6, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What is it to unbelievers? We've already seen that in Romans. If we look back at, uh, at, at chapter 1, we see that they have some awareness of God and creation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of look at chapter 1, and I'm going to summarize it just by kind of uh, quoting specific parts to kind of show you a, a connection here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and righteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress, suppress the truth. So they suppress the truth. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity and to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When we read Romans 1, we're really struck by kind of the list of sins, and, we, uh, and rightly so. But we can kind of read over the connection between abandoning the knowledge of God and falling into sin. In fact, not falling into sin, God giving us up to sin, um, to, to look specifically at that chapter. And I, I think that really ties in with Romans 12.1. In, in Romans 1, people lost the knowledge of God and fell into sin. Now, God has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. We, we've seen that expounded in Romans 1 through 11. And that this knowledge of God is the solution uh, to the problem. It isn't a better moral system. It's seeing God and being able to actually approach a moral system and have it help us. Um, Skip a little bit. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll quit there for verse 1 because I, I would like to at least say a little bit about verse 2. Um, so verse 2, I'll go ahead and reread that for us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, the first thing I, I, I really have to point out here is the passive voice. It's do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that, that's definitely intentional on Paul's part. Um, we live in the world. It's kind of the air we breathe. And if we're not careful, uh, the, we will kind of naturally tend to conform to the, the world. Um, but I think Paul is emphasizing again the, the truth of uh, Romans 12.1, that... You know, Christian transformation is in some senses passive. We, we look to Jesus Christ 
think about what Christ has done for him. And that truth should transform us. Now, um, that's only half the story. <laughs> um, you know, sanctification, which is what the, these, is really about, is certainly not passive. It's cooperative. And I've been emphasizing God's part of sanctification, but we certainly have a part to play in that too. Um, I just haven't been emphasizing that today. Um, Another thing that we kind of see is this idea of not being conformed to the world, but being uh, transformed by the, the, the gospel. Um, and th th there's a little bit of tension there. You know, on one hand, we're um, not to be of the world, but we're to be in the world. Um, <clears throat> uh, it, it, a missionary kind of wrote of having an indigenous principle and a pilgrim principle. Um, you know, the indigenous principle is we're part of the world. And um, we Christianity, in, in some ways, does need to become indigenous to each culture. Um, you know, Christianity doesn't look the same here as it would look in China. And it doesn't look the same here or in China as it might look in Ethiopia or other parts of the world. You know, there, there are ways that the gospel and the culture you know, interact with each other. Um, but there's also the pilgrim principle, where we're aliens and strangers without a homeland, awaiting a kingdom. And the tension between these is always going to exist. And we see this just in a single verse from Jesus. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. In other words, Jesus isn't praying to the Father to keep his church outside of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. At the same time, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Um, so we see both of those uh, principles in the, the same verse. So not conforming to the world doesn't mean being removed from the world, and it doesn't mean rejecting one's culture. At least the, the aspects of that culture that aren't specifically in conflict with the gospel. But what about, does it mean avoidance of world, worldly behavior? Well, I think it does, but I don't think that's a complete answer. And the reason that I would say that is there are plenty of non-Christian religions that don't have the gospel that do a pretty good job of avoiding all sorts of aspects of worldly culture. So it, it must be more than that if we need to have a transformed mind, uh, a mind that's transformed by the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. Um, we need an in, inward transformation, a renewal of our mind, which is what the rest of the verse is pointing to. Um, if we look at a legalist, uh, a moralist, someone who's trying to obey a set of rules to achieve morality, um, what they're deep down trying to do is resist what they really want to do and you know, uh, conform to a set of rules. The, the key difference is that God is transforming our very motivations. When we look to Jesus Christ, we should say, you know, uh, as we're being sanctified, we should eventually start to look at sin and realize, you know, I would much rather have Jesus Christ than what sin offers me. And so we're able, by, by looking to Jesus Christ, to start to actually do what we want to do, to achieve the same effect, you know, not, not obeying a set of, not, not um, violating a set of rules that the moralist achieves, but we do it by a heart transformation, by, by a change in desires. And God what he, God is offering him, um, himself to us. And we see that so clearly in Romans. What could possibly be, you know, uh, even compared to that? Um, 
So what about the Spirit's role? We, we know that this transformation can't happen without the Holy Spirit. And I don't have time to really get into that. I would really suggest Tim's sermon that he did about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, on the Holy Spirit. It was outstanding. Um, that I think Tim did it, kind of went through the role of the Holy Spirit in the, the lives of the believers. But to, to really summarize it, if we were exposed to the entirety of, of Scripture without the Holy Spirit, we'd react to it the same way the Pharisees did. We'd turn it into a set of rules, and we, we would miss Christ. We, we need the Spirit to open our eyes uh, and to illuminate uh, and to help us to actually see the truth of the gospel in there. Otherwise, we'll twist the Scripture into something that's a religion and not, not Scripture. And not gospel. I, I really don't want to emphasize that we should be sitting around and waiting for the Spirit to do His work. Um, we should be active. If we uh, <clears throat> are, are finding ourselves tempted to sin, first of all, we resist that sin. But if we realize that we're drawn to it, fundamentally, we don't have a, a clear picture of who Jesus Christ is and what we're offered. And so we, we should be going back to the Scripture, praying, trying to understand God better, meditate on, on the truth of the gospel and thinking more deeply about who God is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Let's see how am I doing. Okay, there, there's one more thing I want to make sure that I get to. Um, and that is that this transformed mind that uh, is talked about in verse 2 will let us know the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so what I want to kind of finish with is what does it mean to, to know the will of God? Um, does it mean that I'll know which car to buy or whether to get a cheeseburger or a hot dog for lunch? <laughs> um, does, or does it mean something a little bit different than that? Because you'll, you'll hear a lot of Christians that um, kind of are, are hoping that they can kind of figure out what God has decreed for their life and, and kind of find that and, and, and follow it. Um, but I think the, the first thing that we need to look at is what is meant by the will of God in this verse. And there are some clues to it, but before we, we look at that, we need to step back and ask, what does the will of God mean in the scripture? And we'll see different things. For example, I'm going to just read Acts 4, 27 and 28. Uh, there's a lot of other places we could go to see, see the same thing. This is probably the clearest in my mind. But this is Peter's uh, sermon you know, on the day of Pentecost, so shortly after uh, the crucifixion of Christ. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Or you could look at Isaiah 53 that's talking about Christ's crucifixion as well, yet it was God's will to bruise him and to cause him to suffer. Um, and so... Christ's crucifixion was God's will. Um, that's clearly taught in Scripture. But that brings up a little bit of a problem. 
a, a kind of a, a, an intellectual challenge. Uh, there's a, a whole lot of sin that had to happen to crucify the Son of God. Um, um, so the, the will that is being spoken of there is God's sovereignty. I'll, I'll call it God's will of decree. God has um, sovereignly ordained how history will flow, and sin is in, included in that. And so if you, if you can say that Christ's crucifixion was the will of God, you would have to say that in, in some sense, God willed for sin to happen for a greater good to come from it. God didn't cause the sin. He's not the author of sin. But there is, is some sense in which God wills the, the sin. You could look throughout the Bible, though, and you can see that it's always God's will to obey his will of command. Um, if you are walking by a pear tree and think, wow, those, those pears look pretty good. I'd like to feed those to pigs. Um, you don't have to stop and ask yourself, well, is, is God's unrevealed um, will of decree that I sin here and feed these pears to, to pigs, or should I um, not do that? You don't have to ask that. You know that God's will for you in that situation is not to sin. Um, and, and so that, that's an easy one. So the, the question is, which of the, these two wills of God that we both see in Scripture is being talked about in Romans 12.2? Is it um, God's will for how history will flow? Or is it God's will for how we should obey him? And I, th I think it's, it should be fairly obvious that it's God's will for how we should obey him. Um, but we can kind of see that in the, in the text. For one, you know, knowing the future, knowing how things will f unfold. Should I buy a house now or should I wait six months until there, there's a market correction? That, that's more akin to fortune telling than Christianity. Um, I, I'm not saying it's, not a, it, it's, it's wrong to try to look at the newspaper and try to decide if that's a good decision, but we shouldn't expect God to reveal how, how things are going to unfold in that sense to us and kind of give us an advantage over unbelievers. Um, but we can see that in the passage. It doesn't take a renewed mind to use knowledge of the future and, and profit from it. Um, we don't need a renewed mind for that. We do need a renewed mind to really understand what God's will is in terms of how we should live our, a life that's pleasing to him. Um, and then there's uh, a word. It's actually a single word in Greek. Um, in the NIV, it's translated as test and approve. In the ESV, it's uh, translated that by testing, you may discern. And it's kind of a fun word in Greek. It actually uh, comes from um, metallurgy. And so if you uh, were out and found you know, some silver ore or some gold ore and you uh, brought it to a metallurgist to, to sell it, what he would do is he would melt that down and the dross would flow to the top and what was actually gold in that would be left. Um, it would be tested to be gold, but the dross would be removed. And so in the process of testing also purifies it. There, there just isn't an equivalent English word to that, but that is what the um, the word of you know, test and approve uh, God's will mean means. Um, and in in short, it, it'll lead us to correctly understand the Bible. Without um, you know, the, this transformation of of mind, we'll see scriptures, we'll find a set of rules, and we'll become worse moralists than we were before. Um, but it, it shouldn't stop there. Um, there's a lot of you know, things that will come up in day-to-day -day life that the Bible doesn't have specific teaching on. There's decisions that we have to make with moral implications. 
And we can't find chapter and verse that tells us what to do. But as we understand the the Bible, the, you know, God's kind of revealed will better and better, we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is for those situations and make decisions that are more and more pleasing uh, to the, the God that has done so much for us. And finally, a lot of our behavior isn't rational. When I stub my toe, I don't stop and think of the appropriate uh, number and you know, kind of the right level of expletives to you know, let it loose with. <laughs> I, that, that's a response. But it's not a right response. <laughs> um, it's really showing what's in my heart. A, a lot of people will say, well, you know, that's not something you have under your control. God will only you know, tell you to control things. But that's not biblical. If you look at uh, Matthew 12, 34 to 36, either make the, um, the tree fruit, uh, sorry, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, um, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil tra- treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So, as this truth permeates us, we will respond even in- instinctively um, with ways in, in ways that are closer and closer to being honoring to God. We won't get there, not until we see Christ perfectly um, on, on the other side of the second coming. But as we see Christ revealed in scriptures, and as we meditate on that and are transformed by that, we can get closer and closer to Christ. Rick, will you close us in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words from uh, the pray that, um, that we would desire uh, to do your will. And to, not, to do that, we need to understand and we need to, to revel in the mercy that you've had for us from the very beginning. That we may then love you more, and by doing so, that we would offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices, so that we, in turn, will desire to have our mind transformed to the mind of Christ so that we can learn test and approve your holy will. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thanks.